0: Welcome y'all. It's my favorite podcaster, Donna D, and the Urban Mommy Podcast. Make sure y'all subscribe and share. Tell a friend and hit that bell to keep up with the latest updates. Cause you don't want to miss come what my on. girl got to say. I'm just saying, ha. <laughs> the Urban Mommy Podcast. Let's go. Let's go. Hello everybody, this is your girl Donna D, aka The Urban Mommy, and I am back with another podcast. Today, we are going to be healing each other with spirit, and I am joined by Laura Bonetsky-Joseph. I just wanted to say it, but (laughs) we're going to call her (laughs) Laura. (laughs) Welcome, Laura. Thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Well, thank you for having me.
0: Of course. Okay, so let's get started, and the way we like to introduce ourselves is to basically... Tell everyone who you are.
1: Well, like I said before, that's like opening up a can of worms. I can go into so many different directions of who I am, but I guess I can go into, I am a multi-generational healer and intuitive. I'm an approved teacher out of Kyoto, Japan and some Japanese therapies. I've been practicing spiritual-based integrative holistic therapies for almost 20 years now professionally and um, it kind of, even though it's a multi-generational, I've been doing it most of my life. I think it takes some time as a traumatic event um, to kind of snap you out of that. Um, I'm, I do a lot of trauma work and I'm very active in the domestic violence community also in Boston and I've testified on 11 different legislative policies and Um, bills in Massachusetts, everything from prison reform and all kinds of things. (laughs) So I'm an author of two books, and uh, I also have the podcast Triggers and Spiritual Medicine, which really addresses the intersectionality of a lot of what is making our culture sick, because a lot of what I see is one root issue and a lot of problems.
0: (laughs) That is a good way to um, say it. So... How was it for you, uh, like, when you were growing up? I always like to look back and see how our lives change from childhood to now.
1: So it's interesting. Um, a lot of work, some of the work I do is generational trauma. And um, part of how I actually even got into doing my own business was by accident because of what I like to call healing the broken me. Um, I grew up in, you know, on the surface, it looked like white suburbia. Mommy was a nurse and daddy was a doctor, but it was a lot of domestic violence. My dad grew up very poor. His parent, he grew up in in an immigrant family. And, um, so there was a lot of serious abuse that was placated, you know, whatever happens in the family stays in the family. You don't talk about it. 10 years of Catholic school, you know. Um, and also being a natural, intuitive, uh, you know, almost getting out, kicked out of Catholic school in second grade because I said, hey, I want to pray for my grandfather because he died of a heart attack in, in second grade. And, you know, a week later, he dropped out of a heart attack. And so there was a lot of questions around that. And... Um, So I grew up with like a lot of this duality, you know, and and again, one of the things I know in my own healing journey with me doing a lot of what I call the unpacking mode. We're unpacking a lot of things we normalize, whether it's cultural or society or trauma or whatever it is, is how much we normalize things. So when I was after leaving my domestic violence relationship, Well, you can go back. So domestic violence there, I lost my virginity to a rapist. Um, Then I lost my first job to uh, somebody after college, to somebody who I just reported, say, hey, can you tell this guy to keep his hands off of me? You know, he's groping me. He's telling me he wants to go home and have sex with me and all this other stuff. And next thing I know, I was fired the next day just for saying, keeping your hands off of me to then moving into, you know, my abuser. So it's like, you look at like, where does all this stuff come from, right? And I think what happens is we we normalize things so we don't know how to spot signs or we think we're doing it. And, um, but it it comes down to the energies within us and how do we unpack that mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and physically. And so that's kind of 52 years summed up (laughs) and (laughs) <laughs> I guess a couple minutes. So it's been a lot of extremes in my life, you know, a lot of extreme highs, and a lot of extreme lows. And I mean, I bu- and as a high, I bought my first house at 19 to basically almost becoming homeless in my thirties, you know, because of domestic violence, you know, where I spent 17 years trying to leave an abuser because he, once I left, he used the family courts to continue patterns of abuse. And because I was a fighter, you know, I I was always taught, you know, I was the oldest in the family. So I think my, you know, my father and his culture, you know, I should have been a boy. (laughs) So I was raised like the boy, you know, so I was raised that I could do anything a guy could do. So on that end, it's like, again, the extremes, right? You know, I could do anything a guy can do. I was equal to a guy. I could accomplish anything a guy can do. But yet, until I was met with family courts, and it really hit me hard at how systemically oppressed it is in the system. And so the louder I kept screaming about protecting my kids, and it wasn't happening, I thought, okay, I'm going to go back then. It was blogger. You blog about family court. You blog about the failures of the system. You blog. The next thing I know, um, and I had a 2020, I think it was a 2020 reporter or somebody reach out to me at the time. And wanting just to know more information nothing came out of it and next thing i know i had a target on my back and i was thrown in jail as a form of silencing me where i was denied my right to a lawyer i was denied a bunch of other things and i got to see systemic oppression for the first time that i never thought i would ever experience and um i do a lot of community service so i was like what the heck? I mean, on the other hand, it's like I was nicknamed Dr. Doolittle growing up and here's this girl that can talk to animals and, you know, does all this healing stuff. Even ever since I was a kid, I always wanted to help the disenfranchised. It's just been in me my whole life, whether it was an animal or somebody that I said, no, like anything that was like systemic injustice, I just couldn't sit by. That's just kind of how I always was. I guess hearing how my grandparents immigrated here and some of their struggles and and you just learn about all those different things and but then actually facing what you were fighting for and going like holy cow now you're adding a whole different level of not only systemic oppression but corruption mm. and that's kind of where some of the books came in because the more i became outspoken the more i had a target on my back
0: <laughs> So. You said the target on your back, was that from the situation with the family court or was, or was that, what was that exactly? Yeah,
1: so family court, you know, and this is where the blessing in disguise comes in because if I, at the same time, if I didn't go through what I went through, as my dad said at one point, you know, it's the most expensive college education you've ever had, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but... Right. You don't know what you don't know until you experience it firsthand. So like, if I, especially if I'm talking to all the white folk that might be watching here, you don't know systemic oppression until you actually experience it. Because, um, you know, they threw me in jail for 30 days plus six months of criminal court community service for $300 because the Department of Revenue didn't take it out of my checking account at the time. It was in route as a way to punish me and it was it was a way because a a week before my ex's lawyer said she's going to jail anyway as if it was already premeditated okay so it's like how does he know that unless it was already a done deal a week ahead of time so that kind of blew me away that i i always thought that the truth shall prevail you know the truth shall set you free we're taught that right you speak truth the truth will set you free like you you, you can't you you know <laughs> and then be like wait a minute like right. you know so um it was it was a learning experience i learned a lot because the family courts today are Ooh. worse especially since the last four years or so have gotten <laughs> ex- extraordinarily worse um Ooh. where i've I just saved a woman from, uh, or helped save a woman from going to prison because she developed such severe trauma that her trauma manifested physically after 10 years of litigation abuse and the system not stopping it. And she was a fully functional nurse to becoming disabled because of the level of abuse that was worse to the family courts than what she endured in person. And the judge punished her because she got sick took away her kids, uh, sanctioned her, and threatened her with six months of of, uh, prison time. That is almost $70,000 of taxpayer money to punish a victim of domestic violence because she got sick because the system isn't stopping the level of abuse in the courts.
0: Wow. Wow man uh just thinking about like domestic violence we've been having uh several issues here in new orleans where women are being killed i mean that's everywhere all around the country but i mean we've been having actually we've it's an alarming rate i'll say that that we have with young women being killed by their spouses their exes and it's really sad because i went with a friend of mine who was doing a restraining order for domestic violence and what they put you through to fill out that information is crazy. And a lady just basically gives you a packet and the packet is all, of course, in legal jargon. So some of the people probably don't even understand everything. They don't. And their brain isn't
1: always functioning in an effective way. I always say it's like, if you're talking to a victim of domestic violence, especially Mm -hmm. if they're going for a restraining order for the first time, you're talking to somebody as if their finger is stuck in an electrical socket because the nervous system is
0: fried. Yeah. They need to give you an advocate the minute that you go down there because they, like I said, and then the lady just told her, fill out everything, just check everything off. And I was telling her, no, that doesn't make sense. Um, because I think in, in New Orleans, it was just a domestic, it wasn't really domestic violence, but it was, uh, like a threat of violence. So it was like, I'm going to kill you. But the only form that they give you says stalking and something else. So that's the only form they give you when you go down there to do a restraining order. So when we were sitting in court, the person that went before us, she was trying to explain her story and the judge was telling her, so, so he's stalking you. And she's like, no, he's not stalking me. And she said, well, that's what this letter just says. It says that you said this person was stalking you. And she's like, well, no, the lady told me to fill it out. I was just trying to, you know, so it was, it was a, it was a mess.
1: And then what happens is the victim looks bad in front of the judges. If it's the victim's fault, Yeah, we have, um, just in the past 18 months or so, domestic violence-related homicides in Massachusetts are up 40%. So, um, and Massachusetts is boasted to be one of the safest states in the country, and it's up 40%. And um, I can't tell you what I'm witnessing with some of these family court judges. I mean, I testified, on 11 bills this year, because one of the things that they're doing now, and I know, and I know folks that are in the BIPOC community already know this about the prison system, but um, the prison system has also become another weapon for abusers to silence. It's become the new insane asylum to lock up their victims from screaming and saying "protect me," and because family court judges there is like a family court judge can lock you up for an indefinite amount of time for no just reason think about that and because of that the aclu won't get involved certain legal advocates won't get involved specifically because it's a family court judge which makes it even more dangerous for victims because there's no recourse for that. If it's a district court judge or a superior court judge or any other court system, there's recourse. Right. There is none for a family court judge. And I, and that to me scares me. Like that's some of the things like they want to build a, a $50 million women's prison in Massachusetts. And I said, what? Just so you can say I'm being too loud. I mean, they're already doing it now with what the Gaza thing, right? And I tell victims of abuse, you want your story heard. You want to be believed and heard. You got to fight for other children and other people that are equally as oppressed because we have the same enemy. Every single one of us have the same enemy. The same enemy is behind all of this for the most part, right? Because it's the same type of person that does this. And if you're gonna lock somebody up, like in a prison, a family court judge can lock you up for an indefinite amount of time with no just reason is freaking dangerous. Dangerous, you know? I had people say to me, oh, you were at Framingham State Penitentiary? That doesn't happen for what? And I said, because DOR didn't take out $300, you know, and give to my ex, and I refused to cut him a check because he had already stolen my identity like four or five times. He's broken into my house. Nobody's done anything. And I wasn't gonna give him another chance to know my banking account information and routing numbers so he can then just go and impersonate me and steal more money and then have nothing else be done about it. So, and I was the one punished for that, you see?
0: (laughs) Right. And how long did you do in jail?
1: I ended up only serving eight days of that sentence, but it was a 30 day sentence but I also did six months of criminal court community service. I know people that I did criminal court community service that was there for maybe eight weeks that served serious violent crimes. I was there because of $300 that wasn't taken out of my checking account yet because of DOR, something that was in the system not being done. I knew of a woman that was 26 years old serving a prison sentence for seven months. You want to know what her crime was? Hmm. Her crime was. Now, if you you all remember like the recession of like 2013 that was compared to the greatest recession since the Great Depression, Mm -hmm. right? She lost her job. She couldn't find another job. She was a single mother. She was forced to go back in and move in with her parents which then meant that she was sleeping on the sofa. So daddy who had not been active in the child's life ever, pretty much, and had trouble even paying child support, decided to get full custody. He got full custody because she didn't have permanent housing solutions. And he did despite history of abuse and she lost her job and the judge sanctioned her to pay his legal fees of $5,000. She was unemployed, living on a sofa, as a single parent and during the greatest recession, and she had 30 days to come up with $5,000 or she was going to jail for 30 days. She had, guess what happened in 30 days? She didn't pay it. So she went up for 30 days. And then when she came out, she had 30 days to come up with $5,000 as an unemployed person during the greatest recession with no job, or she had to serve 60 days. So by the time it was done, she was serving seven months by the time right. I met her because she couldn't pay a lawyer. That is the level of judicial abuse we are seeing here in Massachusetts. And, um, you know, like again, we all think we're so blue. We're all, we all forget. This is also where we burned women at the stakes because of their religious views, right? This is also the state that persecuted and, and slaughtered thousands of Native Americans for, to conquer their land, right? At the same time, we also fought, but here's the duality. We also fought the British on this land here in Massachusetts to free ourselves from oppression. So this, it's like the extremes on both ends, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So it, um, it's been a 20 year fascinating journey, but I've also learned if you really want to heal the root issues to chronic illness, Mm -hmm. You have to heal all the issues, you know, if one person is not free, we are not all free. And and if you want, if if you want to heal your own stuff, you can't heal your own stuff and become fully healed unless everybody around you is equally has at least the same opportunity and the same ability, you know, and addressing the root systems. So that's kind of where prison and all this has made me good at doing that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right. So you I guess you're like an advocate for the domestic of, um abuse.
1: Yeah, so I'm I'm a, I'm a member, of, yeah, I'm a member of the Track Coalition as well. So even though I've been doing domestic violence advocacy, I kind of really wasn't with an agency for many years. Um, Primarily because I was very irritated that many of the local domestic violence agencies, as good as they are on some fronts, they also were talking with their tail between their legs, telling on one end for you to leave your abuser and on the other end, not telling you what happens if you do. And then they put their hands in the air and go, well, I don't know. And then they stay silent because they were too afraid. So there was a lot of hypocrisy many years. And what I'm very happy to see now, at least, again, with all the chaos that's happening, right? You also want to look for those pearls. We have legislators for the first time sitting in our legislative branch that are survivors of abuse or worked in a domestic violence agency that are sponsoring a lot of these bills right we have 70 pending domestic violence related bills right now in massachusetts wow okay that's not including the um uh, the moratorium on the women's prison which is a very dangerous i wish some of the organizations that are really spearheading would also address the other aspect. I get that their, their agenda is the women that are incarcerated through the criminal courts. But my agenda is you're not gonna get as far if you're not addressing how this is an open can of worms for family court judges to indiscriminately, because they don't like you or because you had a medical crisis that they're gonna punish you and lock you up like they did a hundred years ago. They just called it an insane asylum. Right. And 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 so prison is becoming the new insane asylum. Now, if you're talking upper or middle class families, what is happening? They're not using the prison system so much, but they're using reunification camps. That is a corrupt system built on a cult like system
0: mm.
1: by with using terminology that was coined by a pedophile to help abusers get custody. And they're billing these families at a racketeering rate of $10,000 a day (laughs) and calling themselves experts. And they're legally kidnapping these kids, taking them away out of their schools, their families, their friends, anything that gave them any kind of stability and basically locking them away. They're saying only for a few days up to a week. Well, all you're gonna do, hashtag Maya and Sebastian is probably the case anybody can research, you know, if you're on social media where nobody heard or saw them for seven months, Wow, seven months. And it took, I don't know how much of, and they ended up running away from mom where they went and hiding from, for months on end until because of social pressure, the judge finally reconsidered her order mm. and allowed the children to go back to their, to their safe parents. So this is like, you know, (laughs) we don't think this stuff happens here in this country, right? I mean, it's, it's, you know, if you're poor, this is what happens. If you're wealthy, this is what happens. My friend of mine uh, and colleague who was an ex-prosecutor for the, um, the prosecutor's office in New York. Uh, all you have to do is, again, look up her name, Katherine Kassenhoff. She ended up killing herself. Domestic violence, by the way, suicide is up at an astronomical rate, too, because the system isn't stopping. And if you're constantly doing this and you're asking the system and you're getting pummeled, not only by your abuser, but you're being threatened, abused and punished by the system. On top of that, a lot of victims are opting suicide because it's safer.
0: Wow. So. Speaking of that, we kind of briefly discussed you. You were speaking about tips to give people that are going through domestic violence. I yeah, have a different question. So, sure. what advice do you give to the friends of those people? Because a lot of times the friends may not understand and they may say, Oh, just leave. It's not that, you know, but it is that difficult. So, they need to understand so what would you tell a friend of someone who was going through domestic violence
1: one I would say listen the biggest thing that victims need there yes their head isn't always acting rationally so take out judgment if you really are a friend you really need to be there um, the, there's an estimate that it takes seven times of trying to leave before a victim leaves. And I believe it probably, especially after the last several years that double. I wouldn't be surprised is doubled now because it is incredibly unsafe to leave. Okay. So when, you know, the people that are on the surface say, Oh, well, he's just verbally abusing you. Well, there have been people that only dealt with verbal abuse ended up being murder victims. Like, afterwards right so um because i mean that's what happened i think in maryland this guy lost his lost custody and that day actually found tracked the judge down and killed the judge
0: (laughs) i think i heard that yeah there was something that happened here recently where a lady was trying to get protection from her ex-husband it had been going on for you know several years you know you don't get as much help as you know as you would think so she really didn't have help and of course that's the, the the kid of the the father of the kids one time he came to the house and said that he would burn the house the police came in and they stopped him even though they had all that stuff going on nothing happened and he just recently went in the house and burned the kids to death
1: it, it it's gotten worse so where friends can come into play is one be there for when the victim is ready without judgment don't judge them if they go back they need a place to fall when they're ready to leave Two, educate yourself on what coercive control looks like in some cases like i have clients of mine that i do some work and then they'll have a friend and they'll ask me about well what can i do for my friend and a lot of times i will say Just in this case, maybe just send them a thing on coercive control because sometimes they don't realize what they're going through is coercive control. Because again, we as victims, like for me, I thought my ex-husband made me believe that I was what was wrong with the marriage. That the reason why the abuse and everything I endured was like my fault. Okay. And because I grew up in a, in a, in a kind of like a broken home, I said, okay, well, it must be because of how I grew up. That must be my fault. Right. Now also realizing my ex-husband was from Trinidad and understanding Trinidadian culture, which I didn't really understand until about (laughs) 10 years after I divorced and really understanding that culture of abuse and the objectification of women and all that stuff. So, um, you know so really understanding coercive control and maybe giving little tidbits of do you know that do you think that maybe so and so might be doing this i just thought i'd just give this to you maybe that would be helpful but also do it in a way that is safe so make sure that if you're going to be sending information make sure you're doing it through safe means because that's crucial um you know, maybe helping get a second phone, you know, where, you know, that, that, that the husband or whoever the abusive party is doesn't know about. Help them come up with a strategy to save money so they have money to escape. Those are some really important things. Um, and finally, make sure that they have or get involved in a domestic violence support group or have a domestic violence trained therapist that can help them with the leaving process. So they have a plan to leave. Um, That's really, really important. I didn't really understand that when, even though I knew it here, I didn't really understand the importance of it. Again, I kind of thought I was more afraid of becoming a divorce statistic than I, I thought I could deal with the abuse. I thought I could just, if I just fixed me, all the abuse would stop. I mean, for those who might be listening, how many of us are saying that? If I just fix what's wrong and broken within me, then he won't be so angry at me. He'll, he won't he will not hate me so much, right? I mean, my ex-husband flat out told me that I'd be better off dead. He, he multiple times tried to push me, his way of, of trying to kill me was trying to push me to suicide because that was his way of keeping his hands clean. And one of the police departments was smart enough and caught on to what my abuser was doing. And he's the one that, oh, here's another thing. Make sure you document everything. This is what this chief of police was the best advice this chief of police told me. He said, look, there's a difference between knowing he's doing this and he's trying to kill you and he's trying to do all this stuff, but he's very good at keeping his hands clean. So it is crucial that you keep a log or a diary of everything even, especially if it's like, even if it's like post separation abuse or litigation abuse, like after you leave, mm-hmm. you know, he didn't show up to visitation. He didn't pay, he missed, missed child support. He called and texted me this. He called and texted me that 14 times. Like I'm working with a client right now, 58 t- texts in one day, mm-hmm. you know, and then would threaten suicide. By the way, any partner who threatens suicide knee is 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 serious danger not only to themselves but to you because those are the cases that will typically kill you and themselves <laughs> that
0: is so yeah. true that is so true because they don't have anything to lose
1: they have nothing to lose and their way of threatening suicide is to keep you looped in so um, you know but i did have i have a case that i'm working with on other things but yeah it was like 58 texts and like 20 calls within 24 hours You know, and they still haven't followed my advice on getting a restraining order because it is a delicate balance, you know. A restraining order isn't always the safest way to go. But what I sometimes say is file a police report, if not a restraining order, because you're creating a paper paper trail. You're getting it documented. Because at the end of the day, if something happens or you have to leave, or if you're fighting for custody and no issues of domestic violence has been brought up, You have a paper trail through the police department or third-party means documenting the history of abuse.
0: So, and a lot of times, abusers are narcissists. So they are very good at hiding and manipulating. So what do we do or what do we say when when they do go back? I know you said no judgment, but how do we handle it as a friend when they do go back?
1: You have to, you just have to love them and understand, you know, there's an aspect with abusers. There's like an endorphin high that happens, right? Because we see the humanity in our abuser and depending on some abusers or narcissists, some of them actually get off on hurting us. And then it's the other ones where it is hurt people, hurt people. So there's different grades of abuse, right? Um, but we all like to see because we love them, right? We were emotionally attached or we are codependent with them. Um, And many times what happens is they love bomb us. They romanticize us. So part of that's the cultural conditioning, right? Mm -hmm. So it's helping them to unpack that Cinderella kind of mentality that we have with our abuser, right? I mean, think about it, Prince Charming. Prince Charming is a, is a narcissistic control freak, right? <laughs> hey, I'm gonna turn over all my power, rescue me, rescue me, rescue me. That's a, That is code word for turn your power over to your abuser because a lot of times they came in as the fixer. I'll fix me, I'll fix you, I wanna support you, I wanna love you, then we feel safe and the minute our guard gets down, that's when the abuse starts back up again. So it's understanding that cycle and it's understanding how that works. You know, for me, I I say it's getting into the nervous system but for the friends, it's really just breathing and just creating space, Mm -hmm. okay? And maybe don't even say anything. Maybe just let them talk. Right. And if you feel like you want to lash back because you're frustrated, maybe just learn to hold space
0: yes. is
1: the best thing you can do.
0: Okay. That's it. And don't take do it usually in. Tell them, huh? What do you usually tell the actual victim about leaving?
1: um it depends on the circumstance i mean i have i have one case right now with the 58 text messages and whatever um they don't feel comfortable they think you know about getting a restraining order so i'm actually encouraging them to go to the police and file just a police incident report um i also educated them and told them that since their ex-spouse was um concern for the children's safety that that could backfire and in the custody where if they don't do something then they also could have risk of losing custody so that's something that victims have to also understand that if they are not creating a safe environment and unfortunately this is always put on the victims right and in some cases like dcf works in the victim's favor because sometimes dcf can offer services to help in transition but a lot of times people don't know about it they don't know that dcf actually has domestic violence programs (laughs) right so if you're if you're working with dcf ask them for for domestic violence programs ask a domestic violence shelter for programs on housing shelter how do i move out what do i what do i need to do you know um because every place is different. I'm very limited on what I coach people in specific because every situation is different. My sp- my particular skill set is helping people get into the body and understand how to unplug from that cord that's making them all scattered so they can get clear, so they can make good judgment, so they can appear good and confident in front of a judge so they can unpack that trauma, unpack the cultural conditioning, unpack those hidden biases, and learn how do I take back and reclaim that power? Because when you can do that, you're actually protecting your children more effectively
0: as well. Right. You said a little while back that restraining orders are not always the best thing. Why not?
1: It depends on the state, depends on the jurisdiction. there was a case i believe it was in arizona where it was a case where a woman had this guy hung himself in front of his kids at a kid's birthday party or tried to and so she got a restraining order he had unsupervised visitations with a restraining order um and He um, ended up, to make a long story short, didn't show up late to return the children. She kept saying he violated the restraining order, violated the cost. Ah, he's a loving dad. He'll return them. Like, 30 calls later, kids weren't returned. He finally shows up at the police department. The kids are all dead in the back of his car with a gun in hand, and then he dies, police by suicide. So... A lot of times, especially with the gun debate, there's a current pending Supreme Court case right now where whether or not take whether or not it's constitutional to take guns away from documented abusers. Now, the Supreme Court case that's pending is with a guy who has a history of violence with weapons, and he says he has a constitutional right to carry a gun and i think one of the justices even asked the guy's lawyer like do you consider yourself your your client violent and he's he's like yeah <laughs> so, like you know but the fact right. that it made it to the highest court on a constitutional level is scary so and those cases depending this is where it's state by state you Ooh. have to kind of know so especially if there's weapons Sometimes it can really just piss that guy off. If he thinks he can get away with murdering you because you got a restraining order and bury you somewhere where nobody's gonna find you, that's a problem. So um, you know, at the end of the day, it's how can you stay safe and how can you leave safely? And some states are better at doing that than others. Some jurisdictions are better at helping you do that than others. Um, It's a matter of really bringing in the resources and finding who can help you do that in a safe manner.
0: Have you ever had to deal with a man as a victim?
1: Yes. Actually, I was with somebody, one of the cases when I was doing uh, case studies, one of the case studies I had out of the 20 cases was a man and I court watched that case and this mother. Um, asked for early visitation, uh, for the summer and she decided to try to kill herself in front of her children. He got custody, got laid off. And, um, so when she finally, she was involved in a psych hospital, she kept calling and and the kids, wasn't supposed to basically told the kids that if she, if they don't say that she, they will live back with her um she will kill herself so basically she bullied the kids into lying to the courts lying to the investigators in order to get the kids back and and the father was punished with retroactive child support even though he was the primary caregiver for three months while on unemployment so yes i have seen it it's not it's the numbers aren't for every 20 cases i've seen one man you know so it's, it's that's just my numbers.
0: Right. I know sure. everybody
1: has different numbers, but it it it's different. It's different. And and the men that I have heard about and seen and talked to um they're not the ones screaming like Johnny Depp. <laughs> Right. <laughs> um, she abused me. She abused me. I'm going to get you. I'm going to get you. They, they don't behave that way. They don't They don't go men too. What about us men too? Those are usually the men that I usually say red flag,
0: red flag, red flag, red flag. Yeah. <laughs> when it comes to kids, do you think that kids should have say so in which parent they live with? And if so, about what age?
1: I'm really not an expert on that. Um I think you know after what I'm seeing happening with the reunification camps. I think it. I think it really depends on the case. Um, I think if the kids are telling third parties they want to speak, and they, and I think it's going to be beneficial. Yes, but I don't think it should be where you know I I, I can't really speak to that because I'm not an expert. I'm not a psychotherapist. I'm not on that aspect. But um, I think absolutely kids should be able to speak but I just gave you a case where kids were manipulated right Right. and
0: that's why I really was asking because I was wondering if they actually got to talk to the kids and like get them apart and really you know really break it down would they be able to find because you know we always see these sad stories of these dads who are super dads and then the mom comes in and takes the kid and then the dad is you know sometimes that is right but they do a really good job of painting this story on online, on social media. So the reason why I'm asking, because if that story that they paint is really true, would it be a good job to start asking these kids, like, who do you want to live with?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's where we have to unpack the case history with abuse. Yeah, and And, you know, usually there's a pattern that happens and emerges in family court that one parent is really going at it at the other parent. Like they're just going at it. There's like a revenge tone. There's like, I'm going to get you tone. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, like my ex, we had a contempt hearing with my ex one time. He showed up three inches of thick of motions. (laughs) And one day that wasn't properly filed. And the Mm -hmm. hearing ended up being all about that shit and nothing about the contempt and my contempt ended up not being her. So they do it to muddy. And that, those should be cues right there that those that are doing that pattern are an abuser. So there's, there's cues there, but it takes education. Um, there's a lot of fantastic, like One Mom's Battle um, offers a fantastic resource on that. Um, there's the um, National Par- uh, Protective Parents, I think association. So there's there's a few um, really good resources. Like George Washington University has has a couple of resources um, that really address that at a, much better than I do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that are much that I would consider experts. Um, you know, especially in the realms of like coercive control, yeah. because coercive control really requires somebody who's expertly trained. Mm-hmm. Um, I can spot it, but I wouldn't not. So me being able to spot it versus me saying like, I'm going to testify saying I can spot it are two different things.
0: Right. I got you. you.
1: So um, for me, there's a lot of red flags that stand out that are easy for anybody that's got any level of training that you can see. The The challenge is a lot of people I see on social media, you saw it play out with Johnny Depp trial where there's a lot of first of all there's a lot of inner misogyny we we still have a lot of inner misogyny to unpack mm-hmm. and trauma bonding and to mm-hmm. me what solidified that that case in that trial was 100 percent not about whether or not amber did any kind of abuse whatsoever it was solely about whether or not as a victim of sexual assault and domestic abuse whether or not she had the right to talk about it mm. And I think that's what needs to be addressed. And the fact that there was already a judge in another country who already found him guilty of 12 counts of sexual assault and domestic violence. Oh, wow. Based on on evidence that was not admitted into court for this hearing was problematic. And anybody who says, I want to globally humiliate you or I want to um, solicit a third party to say, I want to murder her. I want to, this is how I'm going to murder her. I'm then going to burn her corpse and then fuck it to make sure it's dead. Like that is some serious, like that is not somebody who's a victim of abuse. That is somebody who is not right in the head and it's not mental illness. It's called narcissism and it's called um, misogyny Mm -hmm. and abuse. That is the talk of abusers. And that right there solidified it for me. It didn't matter what she did because that wasn't about what she did. Mm -hmm. Right. So, um, and that's a whole other topic for another day, but (laughs) you know, um, how do we do this? This is why I think we have a lot of unpacking to do. We have a lot of unpacking. We have a lot to unpack you know, there's a we have a podcast episode that I we record. I think it's episode five, if I'm not mistaken, Ooh. where it's called um, "How the Burning Times of Witches Influence White Women Culture Today," mm. and it really addresses what happened over 500 years of torture of European women to help patriarchal men oust strong men. Oust you know, when you think about it, who do they target, they target leaders. They targeted medicine women, midwives, herbalists, you know, all of them, right, and burn them. And then they solicited other women who were too afraid to help support and elevate. And then we have 500 years on top of that, of conditioning. So there's a lot to unpack and reclaim. What's
0: the name of your podcast
1: again? It's called Triggers and Spiritual Medicine.
0: Triggers, I definitely want to hear that episode.
1: Yeah, it's very fascinating. You know, my friend of mine, Um, she does a lot of social justice work in Vermont Mm -hmm. and, um, she was diagnosed with breast cancer at a very young age. And she Mm -hmm. said, when she went back to work she noticed an interesting thing. It was the white women that were treating her horribly, but the women of color are the ones that rallied around her. And she was wondering why. So again, when we do holistic therapies or we're really rooted in our spiritual practices, we always look at the root systems. Where is this coming from? Unrooting our trauma from like how I got the breast cancer, you know, the generational trauma, to how she was even linked it to how her own ancestors at one point were enslavers. And then where did that come from, you know? And it kind of led her down this whole thing about well you know it's how the burning times of witches like this is to understand this and let's unpack this you know influence white women culture today and it really hit because it said yes i can relate to that you know and i was like you know how much we like we call it competition Hmm. why do we feel like you're a threat to me why do i have to think that you're gonna sleep with my husband right that's all the same mentality of a 1,000 years ago we were doing or 800 yeah. years ago, whatever it was. And that was what was thrust upon us. When are we finally going to say we're not going to behave that way and unpack that? So our daughters don't continue down that line of behavior.
0: And that, that's funny you say that, that the, the Black women were nicer to her. And it's strange because sometimes when... We, deal- we are dealing with something It feels like it's the opposite for me. Like, sometimes I feel like white women are um, nicer, more compassionate to to, to me.
1: And mm-hmm. I wonder, I'm
0: not, that's why I'm very interested in hearing that story. I'm not saying all the time, but like, we literally yeah. talk about this, like, even with business, if we're calling and we're trying to get some help with something, it seems like for a black person, the white person is nicer than the, the other black person. But we say that the same thing you're saying about the witch trials, we say the same thing with, with you know, amongst Black people. We talk about how we are, we try to hurt each other sometimes. So it almost is, it's the same thing. And it's, I always like to have these podcasts because I learn so much about other people. Like you all have the same problems that we have.
1: So I had a story, if I may share with you. Go ahead. Where I kind of had, I, I forget his name. I'm having a brain fart. But he was the Harvard <laughs> professor um at harvard when remember they arrested him because he was breaking into his own house and he claimed racism yes so i had this guy that i listened to down in philadelphia when i used to live down there i used to call him the cranky old jewish dude because he was so outlandish every time i drive to work i was like oh my god well one day he, he goes on and he goes this dumb black bitch hit me and i was like what <laughs> holy shit And I'm sitting there trying to unpack this, like, why did he just say that? Why? Right. But I just listened, you know, I think it was my early introduction of really trying to understand as a white woman, you know, racism and how it plays out with, with uh, folks in the black community who may have descendants from uh, slavery versus like immigrant blacks. And, um... And I I just remember just trying to like compost that and listening to what was happening when he only allowed black callers to call in and this disparity that I saw between American blacks and immigrant blacks. And the one thing that I used to correlate it to was very similar to what I see with domestic violence victims, that wound. Because if you're thrusted into survival mode, because you have to leave an abuser, Mm-hmm. And in this case, like with slavery, your abuser was the white supremacy, right? And, mm-hmm. and, and and the white oppressors. So you're never able to heal those cords because you're stuck in survival mode and it's being bred generation after generation. And it's something I see as with domestic violence, and I saw that similar cord. And I remember talking to this. Guy, I remember at BJ's or something, and I was thinking about this, and I don't even know how the conversation came up, and I go, well, you know, I told him my theory that with immigrant Blacks, they're not coming with that. They were, they were liberated earlier and all these other things, and and I said, I can only presume, I wonder, out of curiosity. And he goes, well, you know, I'm wondering because I'm from Mobile, Alabama. And I'm the director of this housing authority and my girlfriend's from Jamaica. And we have, we have these debates all the time. And I said, well, I'm just curious because I don't know, I I can't speak to those that come from descendants from slaves. I can only speak as somebody who's come from multi-generational of systemic oppression differently with domestic violence and abuse and how I saw a similarity. Because when we're stuck in survival mode, you're not, you're not able to actually unpack it and heal and live and thrive. It just get cast on. So that's probably where I started learning. Well, how can I break that cycle? How can I break that cycle? You know, so we can thrive, you know, and that's just kind of where, (laughs) where, where we ended up, so to speak, you know, but um, yeah. So that's kind of, I don't know if that resonates, but I wonder I wonder if the difference is because of you being in Louisiana, that the level of oppression was stronger there, or there was less freedom, mm-hmm. maybe just from a geographic, you know? I don't right. know. It'd be a curious conversation to maybe
0: see, right? To see, right. So what is healing with spirit?
1: Healing with spirit, well, Again, it's being a multi-generational intuitive. What I've learned: if we're going to heal root issues, you you know what I find. Whether it's chronic illness or systemic oppression, it's usually stored not just in one area of the body. It's stored in all three. But typically, we only address one. If all, if not two, we don't address all three. So if it's rooted in the mental body, the emotional body, the physical body, or the spiritual body. You know and how does it show up how do we unpack it um and because i'm a natural intuitive again runs in my family (laughs) actually both sides on my irish side and my russian side actually and um on my mother's side it's the irish on my dad's it's the russian but you know so um yeah and it kind of just started with just reclaiming parts of myself parts of my lineage parts of what my own lineage was, has gone through from their own traumas and next thing I know a business kind of was born out of it you know I mean not, I didn't go out and say hey I'm going to create a business <laughs> but it's multifaceted I'm trained in Japanese therapies out of Kyoto Japan which adds a nice compliment I do a lot of earth-based medicine um you know, I apprenticed with an osteopathic physician who taught me everything I needed to know about preventative healthcare and preventative Ooh. medicine and holistic medicine for most of my life. So a lot of it's all weaved in from an integrative standpoint. And you know, what I've also learned, if you're going to do spiritual based therapies, if you're going to do spiritual healing, if you're going to do psychic readings, if you're going to do all this, I've been calling it on the, the new age community, which is another code word for white supremacy um and you can't be doing it and say oh well i'm just going to be open to everybody but you're not going to unpack your own whiteness and cultural appropriation i mean it, it just there's all these tentacles so a lot of my teachers because a lot of them are rooted in indigenous practices whether japanese native american celtic um you know, have taught me about sacred activism being a huge part of the healing work. It's like you shouldn't be doing healing work if you're not actively engaged in sacred activism. So Mm -hmm. it's kind of weaved in there together, you know? And I always say you can't do trauma work if you don't know the system. And say you understand trauma if you're actually not engaged with like the family courts or you're not actively engaged in legislative and policy making. You know, you can't possibly know unless you're doing that work, too.
0: That's so true. All right. So can you tell us a little bit about, now you have two books. Can you tell us what led you to write the books and tell us a little bit about them?
1: So I had about four or five rough drafts, (laughs) different books, four or five books. It's probably like the fourth fourth one that got published, uh, but the first one. But so I started off with this one here, Secrets to Healing, which is the uh, invitation to heal the roots to chronic illness and trauma and so we address the broken healthcare system and kind of like the white supremacy there as well as the Reiki industry which is um, unpacking which is more not really unpacking it's really calling in the cultural appropriation of Japanese therapies and um, asking people to show up better. Um, this is rooted in the original teachings and, um, and, and secrets that people can do every day, but it also shares a lot of my story as, um, you know, kind of shows you where I was to where I am now, um, over 20 years. But this one ended up being the first one (laughs) because I was asked when my publisher found out about my story, she's like, you have to write a chapter in this book. So this one actually became the first one. Okay. This is um feisty, dangerously amazing women using their voices to make an impact. Mm-hmm. And the story I share in here, my chapter is called hashtag Me Too Family Courts. Mm-hmm. And it's all about my story. I call it the incarceration story of family courts. Okay. So that's kind of where that is. And then I have the podcast um, Triggers and Spiritual Medicine, which basically since spiritual medicine is the piece that is often missing with how we're broken, we've and it's not about religion. It's about the spiritual piece of who we are. We've gotten disconnected. Um, the body, wisdom, all that is all connected. It's all that soul piece. You know, our ability to hear, our ability to see, our ability to think, our heart, all comes from electrical stimulus. That electrical stimulus is connected to the soul. So there's a physiology associated that we have forgotten about. And it's 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 remembering that, it's reclaiming that. So we have a sacred pilgrimage to Ireland to help us unpack patriarchy, to help us unpack trauma and and um, our old stories, unpacking church indoctrination on sacred lands. Um, some of these places have been standing for 6,000 years and the feeling there is so freaking fantastic and sacred and special mm-hmm. in spite of what the Vikings have done, the Norse have done, the English have done, you know, with Ireland's own history of genocide that they experienced, Mm -hmm. you know, that we also forget, you know, so.
0: All right. So can you tell, how can we follow you, keep up with you, or your social media, your website?
1: Sure. So I'm, I'm on almost every platform, either healing with spirit or Healing Trauma Through Spirit. Uh, and my website is with spirit. The podcast is Triggers and Spiritual Medicine. It's on YouTube and almost every streaming platform that I can think of.
0: <laughs> okay. Oh, good. So it's on YouTube as well. Yes. Perfect. Okay. Yes, it is. All right. So wait, hold on. I like to ask everyone this question. And my question is, if you could go back and talk to your 17-year-old self, what would you tell 17 year old Laura Hmm.
1: that's a good one (laughs) Um, I would say you know the problem is I would know what I would tell her but I would say she'd probably do this to me (laughs) you know and it would be laura you need to deal with your shit. stop running away and heal some of that stuff stop thinking that you're gonna find love externally there is no cinderella story you know let's let's unpack some of this stuff so you can reclaim stuff and i'd be like fuck you so that's that i can see also happening at the same time because i think if we're real with ourselves there's right. that duality that comes out as well right
0: right <laughs> <laughs> But she, she'd probably put it in the back of her head and she'd be like, somebody told me that.
1: Yeah, it's listen to your instincts. Start Stop running away from the intuition piece. Because I did, I think at that 17, 17 I was still kind of doing it, but I started running away because back in the 80s it wasn't okay to have the gift to be able to hear and see and speak to the spirits, you know, yeah. those of the spirit world, you know, and, um, but it should be respected and honored with integrity yeah. and, and that's the colonizer mentality that we all have to kind of unpack. Right. So it's, it's, you know, having the gift and knowing how to use it with a, in a place of integrity is important.
0: Gotcha. Okay. One last thing before I let you go. You say, <laughs> you say unpack. And I know that 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 really just means kind of deal with everything. How do you describe unpacking? Because you say unpacking for a lot. So how do, how do you describe unpacking?
1: So it depends on what we're unpacking. If you know, a lot of times it's looking, it's doing the shadow work, it's facing okay. hard truths, okay. it's um, it's being uncomfortable
0: mm. and being
1: okay with the uncomfortable and facing it head on and not running away from it it is um allowing yourself to process hard things it's allowing yourself to process trauma it's allowing yourself to process grief it's allowing yourself to you know it, and there's also a level of understanding presence and being present with hard things being present with maybe admitting that you have a little white supremacy, you have a little inner misogyny, you have a little patriarchal issues and church indoctrination that, you know, the belief systems and really looking at that and saying, geez, I didn't realize I had that and being okay with admitting that and working on how do I change that?
0: Okay. I like that. Okay, cool. All right. So We have come to the end of today's podcast, and I do want to thank you so much, Laura. I really enjoyed your discussion.
1: Well, thank you, Donna. Thank you for having me. Thank you for allowing us to share some kind of hard topics here. and We kind of shared some pretty hard things that not everybody's comfortable with.
0: Right. And I mean, sometimes you have to get uncomfortable if you want to, you know, if you want to fix things, you want, like you say, unpack. You, you have to have those uncomfortable conversations and like I said, I do appreciate you and I thank the the listeners for staying thus far on this you know on the show and make sure you all follow and keep up with everything and check out that podcast as well because you know these these conversations they, they really help.
1: Yeah, the one we just did in October was three tips on moving through hard truths.
0: Oh, okay well, I'll <laughs> definitely be checking some of those out definitely. Good. Well, thank
1: you so much, Donna. Till next time.
0: Same here. So you guys, thanks again. Um, and if the law says the same, I will see you all next week. Bye-bye.